It's 4 o'clock in the morning. You know what that means. It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. This week, starring special guest star, Mr. Marty Dotson. Yay! <laughs> Welcome to the show, Marty. Thank you. We thank all of you. <laughs> and thank you, fake band. Thank you, fake audience. Let me get the chat room open. There they are. Okay, it's growing already. All right, so here we are. Um, I'm really excited because, uh, as you saw my email that went out, Marty's like a legit hit songwriter, and uh, I'm going to read you off his credits right now, so you can just sit there and look pretty while oh. I do this. But uh, and this is just some of them. But um, must be doing something right, Billy Carrington, which was a number one single uh, from a, a platinum single for, and was number one for two weeks. Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, uh, Kenny Chesney, again, a number one single uh, for two weeks. Let Me Down Easy by Billy Carrington, another number one single. Fire It Up with Joe Cocker and Johnny Reed, another number one single in Canada. Um, Johnny Reed had a number one single in Germany. Or no, Germany Joe was Cocker. Joe Cocker was in Germany, okay. Um, this is the weirdest one on your mm -hmm. list, which was Bounce, which is, uh, I'm probably going to screw this up, but Cho Young Peel? Peel? You don't have all his albums? No, I don't. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, did I pronounce it right? Cho Young Peel? Cho Young Peel. Okay. Number one single in South Korea, an Asian song of the year in 2013. Songs like this with Carrie Underwood, double platinum album. Um, Cirque. Donald Rue and Killer by the Plain White Tees, or I should say Plain White Tees, there is no the. Uh, when You Love Me, Rascal Flats, a number seven single from a double platinum album, Could It Be, with Charles Worsham, which was a number 12 single, highest debut single of 2013, Dirt by Dean Brody, which was a top 10 single in Canada, and Immortal with Saving Jane. So, while many of your things um, have in fact been in country, you write stuff that's not country as well. Um, and, and we'll get to that in a minute, because I'm really fascinated by applying the Nashville country songwriting rules to other genres. But I remember reading on your in your bio that you got a psych degree, right? Mm -hmm. And what was your day job? So I grew up in Nashville, and I was really intimidated because everybody coming to work on our air conditioner was trying to be a songwriter, and every waitress <laughs> and waiter, you know, Pancake Pantry. And, yeah, so I, I didn't see anybody that was succeeding. I just saw all the people that were really struggling and working another job. So I went to college, got a, a psychology degree, and was offered a youth ministry job when I was in college. So I did that and thought, well, this is enjoyable. I enjoyed it. I thought I was pretty good at it. So And I got to do some counseling, use my degree. So then when I got out of college, I was offered a full-time job, and then somebody offered me another job somewhere else and so for at 10 years later I was like wait I never really set out to do this career it's just been something I kind of fell into you know and it was easy and I took you know I took the easy route instead of following my passion so at that point I quit doing that and tried to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up and that's when I decided I wanted to try being a songwriter so you were like 32-ish yeah all right, well, that was a pretty bold move because already set in your ways. Uh, were you married or any kids at the yeah, time? I was married with two kids. Wow, really bold yeah. move. Good for you. Uh, 
so did you keep writing when you had that gig? Uh, I mean, were you still active in music, but just not looking at it as a career choice? No, I, I think I kind of gave up on it. it wow. Really, I, I um, had started writing when I was 11 and loved writing, loved words and and playing with words. And so I think when I when I made the choice that I didn't think that was a viable career, I sort of put that away as maybe a childish dream or or something you know something that wasn't going to be real throughout my life and so i i played a little bit i'm you know i might just play some eagles or john denver stuff you know just eagle guy i like um but but you know more just for fun relaxation i might play the guitar a little bit and sing but i didn't i didn't write i think i wrote in that 10 year span i probably wrote one song maybe wow that's not a lot (laughs) <laughs> no, that's not. <laughs> um, how did your wife and kids and your folks take it when you said, you know what, I'm walking away from a full-time paying gig to become a songwriter? Were they like... They thought uh, I was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they... they um, I at, at one point had a guy, out of pity, offer me a career writing um, manuals for small appliances like toasters, yeah. like writing the instruction <laughs> manuals. And it had put the toast in, push the thing down. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, so I, I had to turn that turn that down, even though I'd been doing the songwriting for a couple of years and didn't have anything going on. But I just thought, my my soul will die if I'm writing manuals for toasters. No, no offense to anyone who does that, but that's not my. I think there's a song in there. <laughs> Maybe. I that had to scare the the you know what out of you. Uh, it's like. You know, one week you've got a paycheck and the next week you don't. And just for our more impatient members um, who send in two or three submissions, like, I can't believe you didn't forward that to, you know, whoever the artist is or whoever the label was. Um, and, and, and oftentimes they complain that they get forwarded to somebody and then they don't hear anything. How long did it take you to get that first cut? Oh, wow. Okay, so I started... Um really applying myself toward it when I when I made that choice and I probably worked for two years for no pay and then I got a offered a writing deal so I was a full-time staff writer making eight hundred and sixty six dollars a month Wow was my advance for a five-year deal Wow Um, but it was a foot in the door and it was the the my publisher was Kim Williams, who wrote "Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up" and "Papa Love Mama" and a bunch of big Garth things. And so it was a great. Looking back, I would have paid him for the, the mentoring and the. <laughs> yeah. yeah, keep that a secret. Um, but it, you know, it was a, it was a, a foot in the door. Uh, but I, I did that full time as a staff writer for four years before I got a cut. Four so six years. Six years doing it full time before I got a cut. And. How did you survive? Uh, financially or yeah. em- emotionally? Well, but, well, let's talk about the financial um, stuff first. Well, I mean, I worked part. I don't, my dad was building computers, like PCs for people, so I kind of worked for him and did some odd jobs, just doing whatever I could do. And my right. wife uh, worked more. She went back to work more. She was a pharmacist, so she could kind of work some more than she had been. And we kind of tag teamed with the kids, so um, I would be home with the kids when she was working, and she would be home when I was working. And That's a home. serious commitment. Mm-hmm. And, and you had a good source of psychotropic drugs to help you get through the uh, right. emotional stuff. She could just go open it up at night. Not really. uh, yeah. 
I was kidding too. Um, I, that had to be a, a strain on your family life. It's like there's no guarantee that you're ever going to make a penny. No. I, I think though that the the panic and the fear of failure really drove me to be like I'm, I'm going to figure this out whatever whatever I have to do to figure out how this works because that was really the key it wasn't that I couldn't do it it was just that like you were saying I had songs that I thought I didn't understand why they weren't as good as the ones on the radio until I you know I got <laughs> this publishing deal and he would go well here's why you know this doesn't make any sense I don't know what you're talking about right here and he really helped me hone in on what is it that makes a song commercial? What's going to make an artist want to get on stage and sing that for 25, 30,000 people and those kinds of things. And once I started learning those things, then I got closer and closer and closer. The craft aspect of songwriting in Nashville is largely overlooked, I believe. Uh, and, and I used to be one of those people that thought, uh, oh, come on, how hard can it be? You know, it's, it's three chords, it's a pickup truck, it's your girlfriend in her Daisy Dukes, it's out drinking with your buddies at the swimming hole. Uh, and then when I started going to Nashville after I started Taxi, I realized, no, these guys are really, like, deadly serious about their craft. They, they don't even waste a syllable, let alone a word. How did you go from being that guy who just knew what you wanted and how did you develop the craft uh, well a good mentor what was invaluable to me it's just as far as uh, being able to bounce things off him and he, he was great at um, showing me the weak spots in my lyric and, and that kind of thing but also I became a, a real student of what was working on the charts because you know I, I was writing with some people at the time where the cool thing was, oh, I don't even listen to the radio, you know. <laughs> Gee, I've never heard that or said that on That's the show before. Bad advice. <laughs> if you're trying to get songs on the radio. So I, I began studying these songs that are on the radio and kind of trying to figure out why they were working, why do people relate to this song. And I'd go to concerts, and instead of watching the performer, I'd watch the crowd. Ooh, and I would, see, I would see what... Uh, songs move the crowd you know what made them get up on their feet you know what happens and then I started trying to incorporate those things into my songs you know so I'm picturing you know Kenny Chesney's up on stage he's trying to get the crowd riled up what is it in my song that's gonna do that or not you know and so there was just a lot of I think it was a six-year learning curve of, of figuring out how to get my songs in the ballpark and then I could hone in on the fine aspects of the craft and, you know, taking out wasted words, and making sure I said precisely what I wanted to say. Was there one overarching thing that you learned watching those crowds and seeing what they reacted to? I mean, was it lyrical? Was it melodic? Was it rhythmic? Any one particular thing that seemed to be the big driver? I think there was different elements that the the smart performers were using strategically mm -hmm. you know so I think they were using tempo strategically um, but they were also when Billy Currington I, I had two number ones with him and so I've been out on the road with him several times and in if, what capacity just to write or you oh, know, wow. to okay. hang out and go to his shows and you know he would say uh, one time he said I want you to watch my show and then watch Kenny's show because he was opening for Kenny Chesney every night and he said, then I want you to tell me the difference. So after the show... <laughs> Kenny's making more than you are? <laughs> Kenny's making ten times as much. Um, but after the show, I, he asked me, and I, I 
thought, I'm not sure what, what I'm going to step in here, but I said, <laughs> you know, I think energy probably is the key. And he said, right, because you keep giving me mid-tempo songs. Ah. And he said, I'm, I really need, I'm kind of become known as this love song, R&B-ish guy, partly because of my songs, and I need stuff that's going to get the crowd more excited. And one of the things I noticed in his a show was if he said the word beer, everyone in the crowd stands up and cheers and holds their beer up. Oh, of course. They so do. If the word beers in the songs, I'm like, write more beer songs. Mental note. So I was um, right about that beer thing in the Daisy Dukes after exactly. all. Yeah. So I mean, but I think that you know, like Kenny is great at the flow of the show, and mm-hmm. and he is not going to let if he brings the crowd down, it's be for one song, and then it's just rocking. And they're on their feet. I mean, he's pretty much keeps them on their feet the whole time, with mixtures of tempo and topic. Uh, you know, if, yeah. if things are feeling a little slow, I think probably he does more of a party song to get the crowd, you know, to right. rev it back up. And I think the great artists are using all that stuff as a conversation with the crowd, and they're feeling the crowd and the energy from the crowd, and what do we need, and where. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. It's funny, back in the days when I used to go out with a lot of A&R people to see shows, and they always talked about, you know, what's their live set like? And it's hard for artists who've never hung out with an A&R person and been to a show, looking at it through that lens, how when you're the performer every night and you're coming up, unless you're studying people like you did, you're only worried about your show and what you do and you really got to be worried about what the other guys are doing because that's who you're trying to knock off, you know, mm-hmm. their perch. Yeah. So I think it's pretty smart that you did that, especially as a writer. Well, I think as songwriters, if, at the time, I was not performing much at all and so I wasn't getting that feedback. You know, and once I started performing, I would do four ballads in a row and I'd see people in the audience, <laughs> you know, just nodding off when it came my turn to play a song. You know, and I, I thought, okay, I get it now. You know, I, I understand why they're not going to cut four ballads for their record, you know. And so performing helps me as a songwriter put myself in those shoes and go, what's this song going to do to the crowd? How is it going to bring them up, down? Is it going to bust their mood, you know, or, or is it going to let them just keep the party going through the whole concert kind of thing? As somebody who uh, I haven't gone in a few years now, but I used to go to Nashville probably five, six times a year because uh, a very wise man once told me, you will have absolutely no welcome uh, signs hanging up for you in Nashville unless you go there and pay your dues, especially as an out-of-towner. So go there, remain humble, keep your head low, keep your mouth shut, your ears open. And just by being there often enough, eventually people will latch on to you and see that you're a good guy and you're for real. And the one thing that I absolutely remember, because I've probably been through 150, 200 meetings, I'd walk in the door, hey man, how are you? What are you looking for? Tempo. Always tempo. But yet it seems like many people write ballads because they're more from the heart. Mm -hmm. And this is how I feel. So let me ask you about writing um, when the muse shows up and from your personal experience versus writing at targets. Do you sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write something, or you have a little sketch of something and go, that'd probably be good for Chesney or that'd be good for Billy. Um, do you envision your target at all when you're writing or you're honing a song, or do you wait until it's done and go, that one would be good for somebody? Yeah, I think I, think I interject my my story and myself into everything I write but every time I write pretty much I'm I'm writing 
toward an artist. So I'm thinking of this would be great for Kenny or Carrie Underwood and those or that kind of thing because it, I guess it would be sort of like if I'm a speech writer for one of the candidates tonight on the debate. You know, I'm oh, not going to write. Ooh. If I write my story, it's not going to be true for them. So I'm trying to write Kenny Chesney's story or or a variation of it that's close enough that he relates to it and his audience relates to it and that kind of thing. So I'm. I guess what I try to tend to do is take my story and make it into a universal story. Early on in my career, I had a song that I wrote called um, She Stopped Living the Day He Died that was about my grandmother. And she had depended on my grandfather for everything. And so the, the day he died, she really was kind of a miserable person the rest of her life. And I'd play it for my family and they'd cry. And, you know, and I meant everything it. to them because they saw it. Yeah. And I played it for my publisher and he, he said, that's the saddest piece of bleep I've ever heard. <laughs> Thanks, my grandmother yeah. loves you for that. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I realize it's not, if I'm trying to write commercially, it's not enough to pour my heart into it and write a great song. It has to be a great song that an artist is going to relate to and an audience is going to relate to. And that one was too specifically my that universal thing um, in the film and TV world uh, they often say they want universal lyrics and that goes beyond just a, a universal topic that can be latched onto by a lot of people there's a whole different meaning but in the context of country uh, music in particular um, it's you almost have to be country to write country if you know what I mean, it's like somebody from New York City is going to have a tough time writing stuff that's relatable for a broad audience of country listeners because they've never lived a life. With the influx of people that I've seen getting off the boat, as it were, in Nashville over the last 20 years, what do you think is a reasonable amount of time for them to become country enough that they can write for the country market from a true place of being that person you know I think I mean I think it depends on their willingness to learn and be flexible you know I think a lot of people come in and going I'm just going to write my truth and you know <laughs> yeah. and trouble is nobody cares about their truth right. at this point <laughs> you know and and so I think if but though if somebody's willing to kind of be a sponge and come in and go okay what what's working then then they can learn more rapidly. I, you know, I feel like I, I mean, I grew up in Nashville, so I'm not from a rural environment. I, I never drove a truck. I, I don't think I ever sat around on a tailgate with anyone. I mean, and so mine was very much a suburban city kind of upbringing. So I don't, but I, I don't tend to write those things either. You know, I, I tend to write uh, things that are more universal, like love or family or you know, so I don't I don't have a lot of truck and Daisy Dukes and and those kinds of things in my songs because that's just not authentically me. So I I think what the the trick is instead of trying to figure out how to be something you're not, it's how to take what you are and make that universal enough, make that connect to people. So how do you do that um, if your scope of who you are doesn't really necessarily fit a broad range? Of stuff. I'm not forming this question really. I think well, I know what you mean. Like, okay, tell me <laughs> 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 what you mean here. It's a psychology degree. Yeah. Thank um, you. No, I guess for instance, like my song must be doing something right. It's just about love, about someone being with someone and wanting to please them and 
trying to figure out what's going to please them most and kind of fumbling around in, in the process of that. And, and so I think that's a pretty universal thing that lots of people experience. Of like, Especially a man, he's with a woman, he's still going, does she like this? Does she like this? What? And, and so that doesn't have anything to do with whether you're from the city or the country or uh, if you were raised in Timbuktu yeah, or New yeah. York, whatever. You know, it's just more a universal human emotion and feeling as opposed to the the setting of the song. You know, so in that song, we didn't place them anywhere. You don't know where they are. Um, you don't know where they're from. All you know is what they're feeling right at that moment. It's funny, in film and TV, placing somebody somewhere is, is a really bad thing. So this really heavily conflicts with Nashville because there's so much visual detail in the in the lyric craft. Um, you know, so if you write a song about they, they met under a willow tree on the bank of a pond on a hot summer day, with all that visual detail, you can't use it in a TV show because chances are that's not where not they're at. Yeah. So you can all you can really talk about is she made me feel great. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it becomes even more broadly universal that way. Let's talk about visual detail. Um, because that was the big lesson I learned in all the times I've been in Nashville and, and hanging out with publishers. Um, writing visual detail, but not being too wordy while you're doing it, that's a bitch. And I have the <laughs> utmost respect for all the writers in Nashville that they can use six words and you're in the room and feeling what the protagonist in the song felt. How do you learn that stuff? I mean, Kim Williams or not, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it's great that he was a mentor and gave you that feedback, but... I think that, I think you have to pay attention, I think, to people, to conversations, to... I'm a, my wife um, jokes that I have the craziest life, but it, but I see things that she does, she walks right past, and so... Give me an know, example if you can. Well, like, we, we might walk past... Um, someone dressed crazy on the street mm-hmm. um, and she just zips on by notes that's crazy I'm looking at wonder why they've got on these zip up pajamas and you know are holding the sign that says you know we'll work for sweet tarts or you know whatever, whatever it might be you know and I'm so I'm trying to see all the detail of of what's going on. Are you there. good at remembering those details for future songs or do you, you know, yeah. say it into your phone or write it and down? Just file all those things away, you know. I she, like that. She calls it for my, my crazy life, you know, but, you know, I think it's just the more you pay attention, the more, like I said, at a concert, the more you watch the crowd and you're paying attention to how they're responding to what's going on up there, you learn a lot about songwriting. You know, and and when you see people on the street doing crazy things, you I think you learn a lot about songwriting if you're paying attention and you're looking for it. I I, I hate to keep going back to film and TV thing, but that's more of my world than Nashville songwriting. And yeah, I keep telling people the best way to learn is just watch TV every night and listen. Mm-hmm. You know, try not to get sucked into the plot or the dialogue. Right. Um, after you had your first hit. Were you like, all right, I've arrived, the doors are going to swing wide open, and you just thought, well, I'll get another one in a couple of months? Well, I, I think I had those thoughts in my head, but my my publisher was very quick to say, what else you got? You know, he was kind of like, you know, you got that cut nine months ago, now it's a hit, awesome, but we're looking at what, what you got going on right now, you know, and 
he was very good at helping me focus on the fact that it might open a few more doors. I might get back in those doors. Um, so my first um, cut was with Rascal Flats. That was the top. That was the one that was top ten. The first one. And so I can still email Gary Lavox songs, you know. So I have access to him that I gained through yeah. that cut. But he's never cut another one. So I, you know, I, I haven't provided him with what he needed as they evolved um, for him to cut another one. But I do have access to him. So I think it helped in that way. But it, it doesn't. He doesn't go well. Marty gave me a hit earlier, so I'm just going to cut this song out of charity for him, you know, to, because he's such a nice guy. Are you so, a nice guy? <laughs> try. But I think it's one of the, you know, so yes, I thought, I kind of thought, well, this is going to make it a lot easier. And it, it made access easier, but it, it didn't make, I still had to provide a better song every time. Something that every pro writer that I know in Nashville understands is that uh, it goes back to the power of observation again. They've really got to know that Faith Hill wouldn't write a song or wouldn't cut a song about cheating because she's got this image of you know, family life. Mm -hmm. um, somebody else might not cut a song about drinking because they're a recovering alcoholic and they just wouldn't want to do that. Everybody on the road seems to know everybody's business in a good way mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, uh, I, I've never been able to teach our taxi members that concept uh, of immerse yourself in the artist that you want to write for because you need to know more than just their last single because of those things like somebody wouldn't record a song about cheating or drinking mm -hmm. or whatever. I mean, it could just be a stylistic thing. It doesn't have to be a topical thing. How is it that every single writer I've ever hung out with in Nashville, they just have this innate ability to know, oh no, she'd never cut that. Yeah. How do you guys learn that? Well, I think I, I teach and mentor a lot of songwriting, and one of the things I teach people is, you know, if, if I created a new kitchen appliance that made bread crispy, <laughs> and I'm going to try to sell it to Walmart, and I walk in, I say, I've got this amazing new thing, and it's, you know, costs $200, it makes bread crispy, they're going to go... Yeah, it's a toaster. We got, five, you know, fifty of them back there. You have a thing for toasters. Yeah, it? but you know, so if if I was an inventor, I would study the market. I would learn what Walmart already has. I'd learn what the price point is. I would see if I could make mine at a competitive price, or if mine had some features that this this one didn't, like it made Mickey Mouse on the bread, or something. I would know. I would learn all that before I went into Walmart because I would look stupid if I didn't. And so, but in, with songwriting, and I did this early on too, we just go, look here, Mr. Singer, you know, I've got an awesome song, you know, and, and Mr. Singer doesn't sing anything like that, you know, which, which lets him know that I don't know what I'm doing. And so the, I encourage people to learn as much as they can about every single artist. I mean, if I'm pitching to an artist, I read interviews, uh, so I know what their, where their head is right now. I read, um what they've said about their family or their upbringing where I, you know I want to know where they came from where they grew up where they went to college so you stalk them but in a healthy way in a very healthy way yeah yes I mean that makes perfect sense to me and, and I believe that that gives you a, a serious edge and I've tried to convey that to our members but people you know going back to what you said very early in the show which is um, 
I don't listen to radio. It's like, well, if you want to be a great golfer, you've got to do what great golfers do. If you want to be an Olympic athlete, you've got to, you know, whatever they call that thing, the pommel horse or whatever, you got to do that, you know, a thousand times a week. So I don't know why it is that songwriters or maybe creative people in general just think that, you know, that God is going to bless them with this amazing capacity to create art that everybody's going to love. And you don't pop out of your mommy's tummy that way. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to know that you've done, like, serious homework. You're not just studying the craft of songwriting, but you're studying your targets. Yeah, I mean, to me, if you're going to treat it as a, I mean, if it's going to be your business, you've got to treat it like a business. So that, and that part of it's not sexy. I mean, you know, doing research and and reading all those interviews and that kind of thing is not it can feel like a waste of time but it really does if I you know I know what Kenny Chesney's thinking I know what he said about his next project he wants to do I know that he said he's tired of being on the road and he's going to take a year off so I know kind of what he's thinking mm-hmm. and I and I can make an educated guess at what I'm writing for him instead of just shooting in the dark yeah and you absolutely would be and, and I guess it comes down to you've even got to do the research better than other people that you're competing with in town. I mean, I know that there's a family of songwriters in Nashville. There's a, a friendly competition. Everybody's happy when somebody else gets a cup, but they all wish it was theirs. Right. right? Um, how often do you write? I write at least four times a week. And what's your structure i mean do you wake up in the morning have your coffee and go okay everybody i'm going off and you know dad's going off to his room and don't bug me kind of thing i typically i i just moved into a new house where i've got a writing space that i so i'm writing at home more but um typically i've just gone to an office down on music row every day just like a job and stayed there until the song was done so some days that might be five o'clock some days it might be noon um how often do you do co-writes? Every time. I'm much stronger lyrically than I am melodically, so I, I always write with somebody that's better melodically than, my, than myself. And that's something I encourage everybody to, to figure out. I mean, even in Nashville, I don't know any one person that's world-class at both of those aspects. And wow. so I encourage everybody to figure out what they're the very best at and try to become world-class at that and find people that are... Can fill in the gaps that's what I do. is there an unspoken uh rolodex of um you know call marty for lyrics uh like where everybody kind of knows what the other people's strengths are mm-hmm. just inherently yeah um, i mean i, think, I wouldn't call him you know not, that. he's not your right guy right yeah <laughs> well and, and i'm quick to tell people you know if, if my publisher says you know i want you to try writing with this guy he's really hot right now i'll say what does he do because if he's a lyricist I know we're going to write a great poem <laughs> with a really mediocre melody, you know. And so I'm, I'm continually, that's part of my strategy every day is to make sure I'm in the room with people that can fill in the gaps where I'm weak and that I can, you know, bring something maybe beyond what they would do lyrically. Uh, in, in the pop world or, and uh, let's call it the urban-influenced pop world, um, I know that times I've gone to the BMI Awards or ASCAP Awards and they call the writers up for the song of the year and there's like six guys on a stage. I always ask this questions of my friends like, why did it take six of you to write that song? Does one guy do the hi-hat and another guy does the kick mm-hmm. drum, another guy does the guitar part? And they said, yeah, kind of. And sometimes a, a guy 
a person will just come in just for the bridge lyric because they have an amazing capacity for writing bridge lyrics. They know how to take a story, add another dimension that brings you back to the hook mm-hmm. at the end, and they just do that well. So yeah, um, how did people ever write hits back when it was just one writer or maybe two writers? I'm amazed that anybody had hits when they didn't have a team. I think for like in country, I think a lot of the stuff was simpler musically. It, it wasn't as complex. Yeah, production-wise? Production, production-wise or, you know, chord-wise, feel-wise. It was just straight-ahead thing, you know, and so maybe more people um, could do it. But I think also, I think as music has gotten more sophisticated, there's, um, I mean, there's been, there's more people doing it now, too, I think, you know, than because there were back Because everybody so, can with a home studio. Yeah, so maybe, you know, Harlan Howard, there wasn't as much competition. Not that he wasn't a great writer, but, you know, I think... There weren't as many people doing it as there are now. Marty and I have a, a friend in common, and Ralph Murphy, who's been on the show many times. And if you've ever spoken to Ralph for more than three minutes, Harlan's name has come out of his mouth, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> you can never get through a conversation without a Harlan reference, exactly. a Harlan story. I've had lunch in the Harlan booth, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, yeah. Pretty amazing what an influence that guy had on just like a, a couple of generations of writers, just citywide. Yeah. Um, Let's look at my notes. Uh, I've covered a lot of good stuff already, gotta yeah. say. Um, and now, of course, I'm out of sequence. Oh, I was talking about oh the quantity of songs you write and how often you write. Um, do you find that quality comes from quantity? Are you a, a subscriber yeah. of the fail often to get better theory? Well, when I first started writing. Um, I came into an office where Kim Williams and another guy named Ron Harbin were writing three times a day. They would write at 10, 2, and 6, most days. And I had little kids at home. I was like, I can't do that, guys. And I, so I felt like a slacker because I wrote twice a day. But we I mean, were, is that Does that put you at a deficit with the other writers in town? Like, mm-hmm. don't call Marty because he can't show up. He's taking care of the kids. It did at the time. I mean, it was more wow. challenging. And struck, you know, I'd, I would have to turn down some things sometimes because I didn't want to abandon my children. Um, it's a fatal flaw. Yeah, well, it's um, a good flaw to have. But, you know, these guys were more experienced than me. They had a, a lot of success already, and they're pumping out three songs a day. And so I felt like I had to do whatever I could to compete. So I, I would try to do two a day. And I think early on, the volume was good. Um, but now I'm to a point where I feel like if I can write one really strong song in a day, I've, that's been a good good day. You know, So I don't try to pack in two a day and that kind of stuff. How often do you pull the plug on something in half an hour or an hour because you know it's a stinker right out of the gate? Or does that never happen? In the- I've gotten to where anymore I just, we, we don't even start it. If, you know, if, I, if, if everybody in the room is not excited about it, we'll just keep talking about ideas and try to come up with something that we all love as opposed to starting on it half-heartedly and trying to make it into something. And one of the reasons for that is the day Jason Matthews and I wrote Must Be Doing Something Right, we had worked for two days on another song, and the second day we got nowhere by lunchtime. So we went to lunch, and coming back he said, do you like that song we're working on? And I said, no, I thought you really liked it. And he said, I don't like it at all. And so we, we ditched it, and he said, let's just write something people could make out to and, and we wrote Must Be Doing Something Right in an hour and a half. And it was our first number one, Billy Currington's first number one. 
So if you so hadn't that, gone to lunch and had that conversation, that yeah, song might have never we been We kept written. beating on this other thing that we didn't like, you know. And so that taught me just, you know, don't work on it if you don't like it, you know. And so, I mean, I've probably missed some hit songs by telling people I'm just not getting that. I don't feel that. I'm just not loving that idea. And they probably go write it with somebody else and have a hit. But I, I, I probably would have ruined the song if I half-heartedly tried to work on it with them that day. So let's talk about the politics of the relationship. Um, you're in the room, uh, and there, I would assume that there may be somebody who's more experienced, kind of the alpha dog and the beta dog in the room. It may not always be equally balanced. Is it intimidating when you're the younger, less experienced writer with less hits on your belt, uh, or less notches, as it were? Um, do you find yourself deferring to them because you want them to like you and write with you again or does Nashville empower the less successful writer to go not happening can you, you know, do that yeah when, early on I was very intimidated so I, the, the big writers that I got a shot to write with I, I was I would just be wringing wet with sweat with, you know what I got done <laughs> and um I did too Don't much. call Marty. He sweats too much. That's right. He's a sweaty dude. Um, but, you know, in conversations with one of those guys, at one point he said, you know, in a nice way, he said, there's no point in me writing with you if, if you're just going to tell me it's great, everything I say, because he said, I know it's not great. Wow. And so he said, I need you to, if you're going to be in the room, I need you to be, you to step up, basically. And tell me when you don't like it, tell me when you do like it, throw out your ideas. And, you know, I've been in a few co-writes through the years where the, the alpha writer really just wanted me to be going, you're amazing all day, yeah. you know? <laughs> but that's really rare. I mean, most of them feel the other way that, you know, if you're going to be in the room, you're there because you've got something to, to bring to the table. And so I've been really pleasantly surprised that most of the people I've written with that are huge hit writers are you know they either won't write with me or if they do they really respect me and are counting on me to to bring that so when I teach songwriting I'm always telling people if you know if there's a, a boss in the room it's probably not going to work very well because mm. you know they they could write a song by themselves if that's the case you know so now I I just go in thinking we're equals it doesn't matter who's had the most success and let's just write a great song that's got to be an accomplishment in and of itself to just cross that psychological threshold you know if you're walking in the room with somebody who's infinitely you know just more experienced and just levels above you i think the most secure person in the world would still be intimidated by that so it's mm -hmm. nice that you're able to walk in and, and feel like you can say not a great idea yeah. Well, and it works the other way. Like I write with a lot of um, young artists and writers that are in their 20s, and I'm a little over 30 myself. So I, I have to be willing to go. I could tell. Are you kidding or are you serious? I'm serious. Okay. <laughs> a little bit over there. Okay. But no, I was writing with two 20-year-olds the other day, and everything I threw out, they said, no, we need something cooler. And I thought, okay. I'm the old man. Old, man, <laughs> old man's in the room. Grandpa's ideas are all not cool. And... So I said, well, tell me what's cool, and they threw out something that didn't make any sense. And I said, well, let's, let's make a deal. All day long, you can tell me when it's not cool, because I want it to be cool, but I'm going to tell you if it doesn't make sense. And so can we work to find something that's cool, but it makes sense, 
and they said sure and so we're uh, we've we've had almost everything we wrote on hold we're about to get a single one of the things we wrote and you know so wh- whichever end of that scale you're on you've got to be willing to level the playing field and, and acknowledge that you know whoever the 20 year olds might have a better idea than I have so I've got to shut my mouth and and listen hey, I'm so glad that you brought this up because I run into that with my staff I, I'm a little over 30 myself <laughs> like twice and uh, I don't I, I know that I frustrated staff members over the years by um, I've read 800 marketing books I read a lot about um, writing copy, about editing copy, about writing uh, headlines. I spent a whole year studying on how to write headlines. So it's very tough for me to have somebody younger. I want the younger influence, but when they just go, I think this is great. Based on what? It's like based on your vast amount of experience and knowing scientifically that this kind of headline will work better than that kind of headline. No, I just like it. Based on your Michael. Yeah. <laughs> your CEO. <laughs> well, but I don't want to play that card. I, but I'm talking about from their perspective. Right. They like it because they're younger. And I don't want to um, disregard the fact that they're younger. And they may bring, a, 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 you know, see it through a different lens. They will certainly see it through a different lens than I do. So I, I get what you're talking about, that you want that input, but you've got to temper it with the craft that you've already learned. In in the middle is where you find the strength. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, you mentioned you teach a lot, and I know that you're a partner in Songtown. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spent time on the site this weekend, Songtown U, or not Songtown USA, Songtown.com, Songtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're partners with Clay on that. And so you guys do anything from um, like one-to-one mentoring kind of stuff. You do um, live events online. What level do people need to be at? to benefit most from what Songtown does? Should they be, um, can they be just a lyricist? You know, because we get a lot of that mm-hmm. taxi. I, I just write lyrics. Can you hook me up with somebody? Mm-hmm. Excuse me, What? what's the best level for them to be at before they can really avail themselves of what you guys do? Yeah, I think they, um, I mean, we have people of all levels, and, and our whole thrust is just to help people learn to write better. And so we have one guy that's in his 60s that lives in England and all he wants to do is be able to write a song that he can play for his wife and she gets it. Wow. And he said occasionally I might go play at a pub if I drink a little (laughs) but he said I'm just not I'm not trying to get a song recorded but um, so we've worked with him on just making sure he's communicating while he's trying to communicate with his songs and helping him learn some things that will help his wife get his songs and then we have you know most of our people are probably would love to have a song recorded by somebody so we try to teach them what it takes to do that so we try to meet them where they are mm-hmm. you know most of our classes on- online are um, you know you have to be able to at least put together a somewhat structured lyric and you know cohesive lyric and melody but we we really try hard to meet people where they are and and help them be realistic with their goals but also um, learn what it is they're trying to do you know so if it we don't want to assume that they're trying to get Luke Bryan to record their song, you know. Do you run into the um, unrealistically hopeful folks that uh, that we've run into countless times here at Taxi that, you know, they're a better writer than their friends and family members and the people in their circle. And they're clearly not bad. They might even be pretty darn good. But then you step off the bus in Nashville and go, oh, 
these guys are operating, uh, you know, these guys are NASA astronauts compared to you're flying a Piper Cub. Now, it's cool that you can fly that thing, right. but you're no friggin' astronaut. Uh, how do you deal with that? Well, we, I mean, we've told people we're probably not the spot for you. You know, I mean, we, we don't give, we don't have the illusion that we're the right thing for everybody. You know, so we, we've had people that we've said, you know, if you're looking at this as a get rich quick kind of thing, we're not going to be able to help you because that, you know, that, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to send your song to Garth Brooks so he can just cut it and you'll be rich and famous. You know, I'll teach you why your song's not going to work for Garth Brooks and then you can go write a couple more and maybe you get closer. Um, but, you know, we do, we do a lot of reality checks with people. And How do they take it? Because we find that some people take it better than others. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've, we've had a few that got mad yeah. and left. You know, I'm going to quit Songtown and they... And most of them come back eventually because they go somewhere else and they get the same kind of feedback, or they're still not getting things done, you know. And so we just, we really just keep trying to bring people back to, you know, if you're not getting the activity you want, the answer is to write a better song. So let's just forget all that, forget how to get to a publisher. Let's work on writing a better song. But my song's already great, Marty. Yeah. All well, my we, friends and family members tell me it's great. Well, usually I can explain why it's not. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can break it down for them. My, Kim Williams used to tell people, you should play it for your friends and family then. If they love it so much, go back home and play it for them, but it's not going to work here. I've told that to people before that uh, if you guys just got me to a record label, I'm sure they would sign me. And I always say, you know, if you were that good, your friends and family members would be running to invest in your project because they'd be guaranteed a return on their investment, you know. So uh, when your friends and family members tell you how wonderful you are, ask them to whip out their checkbook and you'll find out how wonderful you are not. That's right. A few of them might bail out. Yeah, more than a few. Um, Can you play us something? I can. All right. On this lovely new Batson guitar. I I should mention, by the way, that this guitar, I got to play around with a little bit. I unboxed it yesterday because I was here at the office, sadly, working on the road rally. But um, I wanted it to acclimate to our incredible lack of humidity in Southern California. And as soon as I opened up the lid, I went, that thing doesn't have a hole in the front. (laughs) Now, with my keen powers of observation, I said, well, it must have a hole somewhere. And I noticed it's got one up there. Yes, it does. So I quickly figured out that this is the best guitar in the world for retrieving a guitar pick because we've all had that the, the <laughs> shake a pudding thing trying to get a guitar pick. This thing was built to get your pick out in just right. one turn. Exactly. <laughs> but then, of course, I had to play it. I did a really poor job of tuning it, and I played it and went, wow, this sounds completely different from the player's perspective than anything I've ever played. So is, is this what you normally play in... I have, well, my wife jokes with me that she doesn't understand why I have so many guitars. I have a lot of guitars. I have several of these. Yeah. Um, but this, to me, is the the most inspir- inspiring guitar I've ever written on because... Gotta ask why. You know, I love... When I, when I try to write a hit song, I'm trying to think outside the box. So I'm not trying to copy something that's out there. I'm trying to come up with... A variation on the theme that nobody's ever done and to me this is what guitar that taken to the guitar world yeah. is this so we've got it's got a bevel here that's more comfortable on my arm I noticed that too. it's got the hole here and most of the song most of the shows I play have really crappy sound systems yeah sometimes we have monitors sometimes we don't most of the time my monitors down there like they're putting me down right. here you know it's <laughs> a sound guy doesn't know what he's doing so with this guitar I can hear 
no matter what's going on with the monitoring system, I can hear with this. I don't get feedback because there's not a hole out here facing the monitor. Oh. And um, it's great for playing live. But it's also, it inspires me to see someone who took, you know, guitars have been made the same way for how many years? Hundreds of years. And so the, the fact that somebody takes a guitar and goes, well, what could be better? Makes inspires me to go. Well, what could be better on a love song? You know how? Yeah. How could I write a love song that's a little better, a little different, that kind of thing? Yeah, and uh, the you know, I'm certainly no natural pro songwriter, but one of the things I've learned from people is how can you say it better than everybody else who's ever said I love you? Right. And there's a guitar yeah. that does it. Uh, it's no accident that uh, we're going to have bats and guitars at the Road Rally this year. Just want to mention that. And we now have the official blessing from the hotel that we're going to have a third open uh, open mic stage up in the mezzanine when you get to the top of the escalator. Um, because we're limited. We can only get like 25 people a night in the first open mic and the second open mic. And there are always people that just want to get up and do a song. So the folks at Batson are sending some of these out to the rally, and uh, the hotel has given us the blessing to set up a little stage up on the mezzanine so you can just walk up and play your song and try one of these out. Which uh, And if you lose your pick, you'll know exactly how to get it out of there. Exactly. Um, I, I love the finish on this thing. It's mm -hmm. just incredible. Yeah, this one's the mahogany, so it's got a spruce top and a mahogany back. Um, they've got them with rosewood backs, cedar tops. So there's three different models. Yeah, it's really very cool. And it's I, I kind of have this superstition about a guitar. One one time years ago, I, uh, before Batsons were even around, I I brought a new guitar into a co-write and we wrote a number one song mm -hmm. with it. And so I I just kind of developed this superstition that you know, guitars have a certain number of songs in them, and you know then you have to get a new one. You know. That's what I tell my wife, anyway. It's an excuse to get a new one. I've written all the ones. I hope she's not watching the show. That's right. Um, but it, it's a great guitar. I'm, I'm going to be at the Road Rally as a, as a Batson ambassador, so I'd love to see everybody in the booth. And he's also going to be on... Oh, shoot, I put my Road Rally schedule away. But I'm doing something at the rally that I don't think we've ever done before, and I'm pretty darn excited about it, which is... We're going to do kind of like a VH1 storyteller thing where we're going to have Marty and Shelly Pikin and I haven't reached out to him yet, but he's a good friend of mine, so I'm pretty sure he'll do it if he's in town. In town. Uh, Marlon Hookman Bonds, um, and we're trying to get a fourth person that we won't mention right now, but we're hoping that he comes. Anyway, uh, and we're going to have them tell you guys the story of how a song was written. Maybe the story of how it was written or the story that is contained within the lyrics and then play the song because every year we do a, so what's your process? Do you write your lyric first, your melody first? And it's become hard for me to get up there and do it over and over. And I think it'll just be cooler to have the songwriters get up there and play them. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing you do that. And what are you gonna play for us now? So I'll play Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, that Kenny Chesney cut. And George Strait actually cut this too, so if you go to iTunes, you can check out both versions. Kenny Chesney had the number one. Preacher told me last Sunday morning, son, you better start living right. Better quit the women and whiskey and carrying on all night. 
you want to hear them call your name when you're standing at the pearly gate. Said the preacher, yes I do, but I hope they don't call today. Not ready. Everybody want to go to heaven. Have a mansion high above the clouds. Everybody want to go to heaven, but nobody wants Said preacher, maybe you didn't see me Throw an extra twenty in the plate Once for everything I did last night And once to get me through today Here's a ten to help you remember Next time you got the good Lord's ear Say I'm coming but there ain't no hurry I'm having fun down here Don't you know that Everybody wanna go to heaven, get their wings and fly around. Everybody wanna go to heaven, but nobody wanna go now. Someday I wanna see those streets of gold in my halo. I wouldn't mind waiting at least a hundred years or so. Everybody wanna go to heaven Beats the other place, there ain't no doubt Everybody wanna go to heaven But nobody wanna go now Everybody wanna go to heaven Hallelujah, let me hear you shout Everybody wanna go to heaven But nobody wanna go now I think I can speak for the crowd yeah, the crowd loves it. <laughs> Hopefully the folks watching the show loved it. Uh, I've got to say, I was a little distracted. Much as I appreciate the great song, um, I couldn't help but notice that the guitar sounded like a regular guitar from here. I've only heard this thing from, from there. Way, yeah. yeah, it does. It's quite well, a piece. You know, the design, uh, one of the things, Corey Batson that, that builds these, uh, was a drummer, and he said he, as he started thinking about building guitars, he thought, I would never cut a hole in the, the drum head of my drum, so why would I put a <laughs> hole? Because, you know, on the drum, that's yeah. what makes the sound, and on the guitar, this top is what makes the sound. So ah. he said he wanted to experiment and see where he could put the sound hole that would make sense that would not affect the vibration here, because that's where you get your sound. And so the, the neck actually floats above the guitar here it's not connected on top oh I see that and then right, you can slip the, a matchbook in there yeah you. you can put you know you could hide things in there um, <laughs> in and there, the, yeah. you know the bridge as well this floats off off the top so the only thing that's connected to the top and affects the vibration is that piece right there which is what you want yeah so you get a great quality sound they've got great pickups very very cool um, the bridge um, in the song, uh, Jeeps. Someday, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, when you write a bridge, uh, but you're not. Maybe I shouldn't ask you this question because you said that you're not Mr. Melody. But any time I've ever attempted to write a song, when I get to the bridge, I always have this reflex to just like reverse the chords or something. And I didn't even notice what key the song was in. But how do you approach a bridge? Because a bridge, in my opinion, a bridge's purpose is to add variation to the song, but add another in point of interest to it, 
tell more about the story and then bring you back to the main idea. Mm -hmm. um, do you let somebody else handle the melody on the bridge, or, or some? You know, some I participate with that, but I usually have somebody else that's taking the lead on the melody, and I'm I'm usually the one saying we need a bridge or we don't need a bridge. Um, my, Ken Williams, my first publisher, always said, don't build a bridge if there's not a river to cross. <laughs> and so I'm always asking that question in the co-write. I'll say, well, okay, what what do we need to say that we haven't said? Yeah. You know, or what's going to get us back to that chorus in a, in a different, interesting way? Um, we ha I had a song one time called um, Fish Weren't Biting. And we were writing a song about this guy takes his woman fishing and, you know, he baits the hook I mean, or he throws it in for her, and there's no no fish biting. So she tells him she wants to lay out. Well, he rubs some suntan lotion on her. So he rubs suntan lotion on her, and still no fish biting. And so they start making out in the boat. And it's we a thought, G rated show, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> but we thought, okay, that's funny. I mean, it's kind of okay, but, you know, fish, the fish weren't biting. Uh, it's why he got to do all these things with his woman. And we thought, okay, let's have it, let's have a little twist in the bridge. And so we, in the bridge, we reveal that he never baited the hook. <laughs> so he didn't. He was never trying to catch fish. He was always just trying to make out with the woman, you know. And I think Craig Morgan cut that song, but you know. So if there's something like that where we can take the song to another place, is the bridge always where the twist comes, or is are there rules? Because I know there's so many rules about songcraft in Nashville. Sometimes you have to break the rules to. You know, I wouldn't say there's really a rule about it. I think typically, probably, yeah. if, if there's going to be one, it comes there. But, um, I, you know, I, I would say about half the time I have a bridge, about half the time I don't have one. And they don't always have to have a twist. You know, sometimes it's just more straight ahead. And This and the one I just played, we felt like we needed a bridge because we felt like some people might think it was kind of sacrilegious of, of, of him being... Um, Kind of joking around with this preacher, offering to pay him to pray for him, and and so we thought, let's let's solidify in the bridge that, okay, I do want to go, God, you know, yeah. and so we we felt like that made the singer a more likable character, so that's why we put that in there. And again, this is what I love about Nashville because people actually put the thought into, let's make the singer, the the protagonist of the song, a more likable character. Um, most people just write. You know, like it comes out of here like like kryptonite. You know, it just mm -hmm. comes out of them. But the fact that you actually give thought to let's make him a more likable character—that's the kind of craft that you find in Hollywood scriptwriters yeah. or a novelist. I'm writing a three-minute script for yeah for Kenny Chesney. It's my, you know to sing, so it has to be something. You know, he doesn't want his crowd thinking he's a jerk, so I, my song can't make him look like a jerk. You know, or right. he doesn't want to offend religious people in his crowd, you know, so uh, we we really were conscious of that, of trying to make him look good. Production-wise, uh, in the pop world, in the urban world, um, the, the level of demos that are expected in many cases, not all, uh, are expected to be more produced now, and songs are largely built on production. Obviously, you're aware that there are guys who are top liners or, or people that are top liners, and that there are people who are um, more technically adept, and they come together and they create something. In Nashville, when you go into a writing meeting, is a little more pure, where it's two people with guitars or pianos, and you're not thinking about production, or do you hear 
um, maybe like an EDM drum beat underlayment in something because you want to stay cutting edge and the audience is younger now. Do those factors come into play? Yeah, they do. I mean, I think more and more, um, like I'm writing with a lot of what we call track guys in Nashville, and so I might I might go in. That's where a lot of the 20-year-olds come in. You know, yeah. I may go in and he goes, oh, I've got this cool little loop going. You know, and we so we write to that, and we may not wind up using that at the end, but we start with that feel. And one of the things I'm hearing publishers in Nashville say more and more is, I need songs with bounce. And I think they're talking about that hip-hop sort of... Um, Makes you bob your head, you know, kind of. Um, you know. I, are they talking a hip hop beat to a country song, or are they talking hip hop like, you know, the Lack or Big Smile or something? No, they're talking about more of a hip hop beat with a country song. Okay. Over, you know, so they're still wanting the country lyric, but they want a little bounce. I mean, that's the way they're describing it. Is I want, you know, I need something a little more bounce, you know, and and if you bring in something that doesn't have that, people are tending to get the feedback. It sounds a little dated. You know, because there is so much of that going on. I'm glad you brought up the D word. Um, <laughs> it, it's a plague, and it's because most people fall in love with music when they're 15, 20 years old, and and to some extent they freeze there, and they write there. Mm-hmm. So how do you stay current? I, I know you already said you listen to a lot of radio or a lot of current records, but. Uh, it, as far as being current um, and being like 15% ahead of what's happening today, does, does your brain now go to the beat? Are you hearing that little bounce when you write, even though you may not have a track person in the room? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm in ways that feel authentic to me because I like some of that stuff. You know, I like, um, for instance, Maroon 5's vocal phrasing. Mm-hmm. I think it's really cool. So, you know, and there's some of that rapid... Um, kind of off. It's it's just not what you expect. Right, it's, it's not on the ones. Yeah, it, yeah, it's on and, the ends. And so you know, I try to incorporate some of that into what I write. I've got a 16 year old son, and I try to you know he's a big music lover, and he'll come play me the weirdest stuff. But every now and then there's something I hear, and I go, oh wow, that's I could do that. I could incorporate that into a, a song that I'm writing. You know, that kind of a vocal trick or a um, something in the production or a beat that I've never written, you know, and so I'm just always trying to be a student of different music and stretch myself so, you know, because otherwise everything I write would be like the Eagles right. or James Taylor, <laughs> you know. And that's so exactly you are my you. age. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's not that different. I don't believe it's that much of a stretch, using your word, to become contemporary. But so many people are afraid to, and it just takes a little, it takes being conscious of it and a little bit of effort. And when people say to me, I don't like what I hear on the radio, well, you know, you were 16 once, and now your son is 16, he's listening to radio. So programmers have, radio uh, program directors have to pay attention to that. a&R executives have to pay attention to that. Publishers have to pay attention to that. Fashions change. Um, with the exception of, like, Converse All-Stars, we're, we are wearing <laughs> different shoes, you know? Exactly. And, and, I mean, things do come back. Um, clearly, there's been a lot of stuff uh, with, like, 80s influence in the last couple of years, I would say, in pop radio. 
you guys see that creeping into country where you'll go back to an mm-hmm. era and recycle old stuff? Yeah, and, we're not. Um, what's what's getting recycled now? When I had must be doing something right, there had been sort of a drought of R and B type country songs. You know, Conway Twitty used to do that kind of thing, and so there was a period where that was big, and then it kind of went away. And so when we came in with must be doing something right with that R and B feel, people were like, oh, that feels fresh and new. We're like, no, it's feels old, <laughs> but great. You know, so I think there's a lot of that. Thomas Rhett has had a couple songs that kind of feel like disco, you know, some disco yeah. elements and things like that, you know, or you can hear almost Bee Gees influence in some of I that. I love the Bee Gees. I'm a shameless fan of oh, the Bee Gees. Oh, me too. And so, I, you know, I think to me, if you, if you want to do it as, if you want to make money at it, you want to get other people to record your song, you've got to just be a sponge and take in the great stuff from music that's coming out now, the great stuff from music in the past, and figure out ways to make that contemporary, figure out ways to help people connect to that kind of thing. And so and, and also I I have to remember if I'm I'm not writing for me. You know, if I'm writing for a, a artist to record, it's not about whether I love it and I would say it. It's about whether they love it and they would say it. And so I want it to have integrity and craft in what I write, yeah. but it's I'm not the end user. You know, my pleasure with it is not the end goal. So many people feel like they've given up the art, artistic or creative side of what they do if um, if they're not writing for them. You know, if they're not just emoting and waiting for the muse to show up. I think that by learning craft and being aware of what you're doing at all times, that you're actually calling on a higher self, uh, your crea- your creativity is being tapped, it's being stretched, it's being pushed, it's being pulled. It's it, you are asking yourself to rise above what comes easy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's that's hard. Yeah, we could but, sit down, you know, I could sit down every day and write something kind of like James Taylor would have written, but it's just it's going to lay there, you know. Yeah, you know. I I'm get it. I'm a big believer too that songwriting. There's really not so many songwriting rules. There's just communication rules, and it's when we break those that the song's not very good. And that the whole thing about craft with songs is just about learning how to communicate. Um, if, explain that a little more. Well, if well, an example I use a lot in my mentoring is uh, somebody will switch pronouns in mm. in the song, and so it'll be talking to a person, then it'll be talking about a person, and so I'll say. Michael, you've been a great friend to me. I really appreciate you having me on the TV show. He is just an awesome guy. You're going to go, who's he? Mm-hmm. And I, said, I love that you're saying yeah. So I said, that's not a songwriting rule. That's just bad communication. And so if we learn how to communicate clearly, and you know, the other way people do it a lot of times is they, don't, they know the backstory, but they don't give me enough of the backstory. Well, that's not a songwriting rule. It's just bad communication. So if I start telling you, you know, well, she she took me for a ride and stole all my money and whatever. You're gonna go, who's she? You know, yeah. You tell, well, when did she show did, up? Exactly. Why why did she do that? Yeah. And so it's not a songwriting rule. It's just learning how to communicate in a way that's clear, and you know, lets you feel what I was feeling when I wrote it. Ah, I love that you're saying this stuff. I really, really do because, I, like I said, I read 800 plus marketing books, and this is the kind of stuff that I've learned from them. So when somebody says to me isn't this a great headline? I, the first thing I ask myself is, 
what's in it for me because a headline should always have what's in it for the reader staring them in the face. There's got to be a benefit because the job of the headline is to get them to go to the body copy and the job of the first sentence is to get them to read the rest of the first paragraph. The job of the last sentence in the first paragraph is to get them to move on to the second paragraph. So what you're saying is that communication skill set applies to songwriting and, and we get so much grief from our members who get critiques from our screeners that say, you talk about her in the second verse. Where did she come from and who is she? And there's like, we get emails from people, your screeners don't know anything. They couldn't figure out who she was or where she came from. Mm -hmm. Well, communication, a very wise person once told me, is the responsibility of the communicator, not mm -hmm. the listener. Yeah. Because now, they come from a place of knowing nothing. Yeah. And I've, I've got a system I've developed for that that kind of breaks down the parts, the job of each part of the song that I'm going to teach at the Road Rally in, in the session. Oh, that's do, right. He's so. doing, right. He's doing the, the songwriter uh, stories behind the songs. He's doing a class at the Road Rally. And we've got Marty on the country songwriting listening panel. We're giving him a workout. That's right. Anyway, but so I'll be teaching that there, which is taking that idea of just breaking it down to communication and, and looking at a song as each piece of the song has a job as far as communication goes and let's just simplify that break it down and I think it helps people it frees them up a lot to um, not be worried about all the rules it's just here's here's the job that I'm trying to accomplish communication wise here here's the job with the chorus and that kind of thing so. how receptive uh, are people I find resistance because again it takes work um, do people usually get it on the first pass when you say to them, you've got to think about, you know, when you're introducing characters or protagonists in your songs, think about where did this person come from, who are they, what's their motivation, why did she walk out the door, things like that. Do they generally go, ah, I get it, or do they think, you're being way too picky? I get some of both. We, we, we did a live event in Vancouver this summer at a whitewater rafting camp. Uh, I think you guys have had... Uh, Brian Fogelman from at the rally maybe from Rio rafting. Yes, you know, that I remember. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sorry, well, Brian, I didn't remember your name. We did this exercise where um, we had people. I have another technique I'll teach called mapping, but we had to map map out the song in advance and then write the song. Ooh. Well, some of them didn't want to do it, and so they didn't do it. They felt and that so, it, it pinched on their creative. Exactly. <laughs> so then we had a um, we had a, the group come back together. And everybody played their song, and the audience was asked to tell what the map was. Every single time when they didn't map it, the audience was was said <laughs> they didn't map it, and they were like, right. <laughs> and when the audience when they did map it, the audience could say, here's what you were trying to say in the first verse, here's what you're trying to say in the chorus, here's what you're trying to say in the second verse, and people were like, it really works, you know, it really works to be thoughtful about how you're going to lay out your song and what you're going to say in advance and I've got to see if I've, I have something taped to my wall yes okay so just to show you that he's not crazy I gotta move this over so I can see you guys better see I am better. crazy <laughs> but that's beside I won't tell uh, mapping uh, I saw this a year ago online reading something from one of my copywriting heroes and said number one name the enemy number two answer why now number three show the promised land before explaining how you'll get there number four identify obstacles then explain how you'll overcome them 
Number five, present evidence that you're not just blowing hot air. So what did I do with this? I printed it out. I tape it on the wall next to my desk. Why? Because it's a map. When I write a certain style of copy, I will take that thing off of the wall and look at it and read my email and go, did I follow the map? Yeah. Makes perfect sense to me. And I can teach people a, a way to do that with songs. A real simple map and real simple um, framework to just make sure that you're communicating what you want to communicate. That's awesome. Um, man, I've got more questions, but I feel like I'm robbing these guys of their opportunity to ask you stuff. So, um, where are we? Okay, guys, you know what? Uh, let's open it up to questions. Um, and just type in the word question in all caps so I can spot them easily because they will start shooting by pretty quickly. But uh, I just want you guys to have an opportunity to ask Marty stuff. Now I wait for a little delay. How do I deal with writer's block? Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things. Um, I can't afford to have writer's block. <laughs> so I do a lot of preparation. Uh, so to me, that's the best way to, to avoid... So if I come into a co-write with lots of ideas, lots of material to draw from, then we're probably not going to get stuck. And because I can't afford, like if I get an opportunity to write with Gary from Rascal Flats or Billy Carrington, I can't afford to go in there and go, uh, not sorry we didn't get anything today. <laughs> yeah, you mean I just kind of have to be on. But little techniques I do if I'm feeling stuck is I, sometimes I'll just... Uh, run to the bathroom or I'll go get a drink of water or I'll check my email and I think a lot of times uh, just subconsciously your brain's still working on it when I come back to it I have the answer as opposed to if I'm just staring at it going okay I've got to come up with a line got to come up with a line you know so I try to distract my brain a little bit I'm going to add a technique for you and I just read this recently because uh, I do it all the time sometimes I wonder if it's uh, I'm getting up into my senior years now and, and it's senility setting in uh, but how many times have you walked into somebody's office or your bedroom at home and say to your wife what the hell did I just walk in what was <laughs> I going to ask you right there's been a scientific study that claims and I think they prove pretty well that when you leave you have the idea in this room and you walk to another room you leave the idea in the room mm -hmm. so the fact that you walk out of the room you leave the writer's block mm -hmm. and you go out and may have that, yeah, thing I believe that, that you yeah. bring it back in with you that's yeah. pretty cool um, will Marty be one of the mentors at the road rally too uh, you know what um, can I have Angel from my staff reach out to you and mm -hmm. see if you'll do a shift of one to one I think it's a 90 minute shift of one to one mentoring sure um, I don't want to like beat you to death all in one day but yeah, yeah. we haven't talked about that yet we'll talk about that <laughs> um, thank you for asking that uh, do I hear much of the blues influence I don't hear as much blues um in fact, for a while, I think in Nashville, that was sort of like, um, there was like the Winona era that mm -hmm. she did a lot more bluesy stuff, and then that kind of went out of vogue. But that's probably one of those things that is ripe for someone to do it really well in a contemporary way and, and reintroduce it. You know? What about like, you know, distorted, nasty blues rock stuff that, I mean, it's, it's almost become a cliche now that's um, been around long enough, but... Um, 
do people make distorted records in Nashville, you know, like purposely distorted bass or purposely distorted vocals? Some. Not as much. I mean, Jason Aldean, I think, has done probably the prime example of doing more of that. Brantley Gilbert, maybe. Um, some of those guys that are a little harder-edged yeah. performers. Um, does radio play it? Or is radio still... Depends on the song and the artist. You know, I mean, if, if it's a good enough song from a big enough artist, they'll stretch out a little bit more than they will. That's good. Because um, I know there's this ongoing battle that's raged for as long as I've been in the music industry between, you know, radio and uh, A&R people and traditional country lovers. And, and that's the hard part. That's... I believe country radio has got to be really hard for the program directors because you've got the young kids like your son coming up and they want to hear stuff that's got a hip-hop beat and then you could have somebody who's 74 that grew Mr. up like... Don Williams. Yeah, yeah. You know, very traditional stuff. Right. Um, question. How much of the arrangement do you write? Do you just present a set of lyrics and basic chord progression slash whoop tune? Or do you get into what the bass and drums are doing, keyboard licks, how twangy it should be, etc.? No, I, literally, I mean, we literally just record a work tape in GarageBand, like in the room, so it's no, not multiple tracks, and then play it for my publisher, and if, if they lo love it, we'll demo it in some sort of way. And Like, must be doing something right. We got cut from that GarageBand wow. thing, which was, ho it was a horrible recording, but it communicated the song well. You know, there's background noise and stuff going on. Great song. Um, but you know, we I'm always a big fan of just give the song what it needs. So if it's if it is a great song and it just needs a piano or, or guitar vocal track, that's all I do. If it if it needs a full band demo, we do that. If it needs a track guy to program some stuff, I do that. So I'm always trying to look at that on a song to song basis. I used to book a, a, a demo studio and go in and do five songs with the same band. And I realized it's kind of, you know, like trying to put everything in the same box. Of like, you know, that band might be great for one song, but these others were not exactly what they needed. So now I'm going song by song and just trying to figure out what each song needs in particular. Do you know Chip Hardy? Mm-hmm. Okay, because he's got, I think you're on the um, country listening panel with Chip. He's a great guy. One of the nicest men you will ever meet yeah. anywhere. And that guy has more knowledge of everything country music in the tip of his little finger than most of us have. He's great with production stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. But I love that guy. Um, question, Marty, have you ever written to a mostly completed instrumental? Yes, I do some of that. Not as much, but I'm actually trying to learn to get better at that. In fact, we just had a Songtown class that um, Abram, who's here, um, did where we we had everybody write to the same track, so I'm I'm trying to learn to get better at that skill. But typically I'm in, I'm going into a co-write where we're starting from scratch, so we're we're not just I'm not just writing a lyric to somebody else's scratch. I am currently working on one that some Swedish guys sent me, so I'm they did all the music and the melody, and I'm just writing lyrics to it. But that's uh, more Swedish challenge. guys working on country. Uh yeah. That's pretty cool. Most, a lot of them, their goal is to get a country cut. Because they see it as a paragon. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty impressive. Um, somebody just said, are we, uh, oh, we're going to both mentor lunches at the Red Rally, which is November 3rd through the 6th here in Los Angeles. Um, will Marty be there at the mentor lunches? Um, honestly, I don't know. Um, Angel is working on the classes, the one-to-ones and the lunches, and I'm doing the ballroom panels. 
and then we get together to make sure I'm not booking people on panels while she's got them elsewhere. So I don't know if Marty's going to eat a Subway sandwich as he makes his way around and everybody else is eating the hotel chicken dish. We, we do mentor lunches where we put um, industry people at a round of 10, 30 tables of 10 people each, and then every 10 or 15 minutes you guys all move to another table so that everybody gets to meet multiple mentors. But I, and I'll, I'll be in the Batson booth a lot, so oh, I, that's right. I, I'm always happy to answer questions that... You know, I can answer questions about guitars, or Corey can tell you all about the guitar, or I can answer songwriting questions. But great. Um, what is the order you write a song? Uh, drums, lyrics, melody? That feels a little backwards to but me. I, I think I didn't answer a question earlier oh, okay. too that kind of was related to that. They were asking if I deal with the drums, what the drums are doing, and all the different parts. But so typically, no, we just write the lyric and the melody. And the feel, I mean, we may be playing to a drum loop, but we just record that that way so that when we go to the studio or go to a track guy, they know kind of what we're envisioning feel-wise. But we don't, I don't get into charting out the arrangement of that any in individual instrument is playing. A lot of times I don't even know what I'm playing. <laughs> the musicians tell me. Um, but the order that we write a song, typically we start with, we'll throw out titles because... The, the feel is kind of dependent on the title a lot of times and what we write. So um, every now and then somebody will have a drum loop going and we just kind of try to find a title that fits that. But most of the time we start with a title and the track guy may go, oh, I've got this thing I started that would, would fit that great. And so we kind of try to marry um, the, the idea lyrically to a feel that's going to work well for that. Uh, I made a note before you arrived in Los Angeles about titles and I want to bring this up because oh, my favorite title so far this year in country music is You Look Like I Need a Drink written mm -hmm. by Rodney Claus and Matt Dregstein and Natalie Hemby You Look Like I Need a Drink that's and a great title it is and you know you think it's going to be she is not the world's most beautiful woman. This is the twist. Mm -hmm. You come to find out that she walks into the room and he can tell, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. The relationship's over. I need a drink. So that's a great example of the title, um, getting your attention. It's a little ironic and funny. Um, and the song's twist is it's not what you expected it to be when you saw the title or heard the first mm -hmm. uh, half of the first verse of the song. So yeah. it's like all the things that Nashville writers learn and don't even think about when they're writing anymore because it just comes out of we're in that one. So and that's good. I think that's a great example too of you know probably if you if you gave that title to a thousand songwriters, mm -hmm. 995 would write them the way you were talking about because it it's the most obvious right it's kind of the first, not the world's most attractive first lady. exit off the interstate right you know, exactly. right there but it you know what separates the people getting the cuts from those that aren't is often that they're driving on down the road and they're looking at all the exits and they go oh this is intriguing you know and you know a lot of times in our co-writes if some somebody will, i'll throw out a title and somebody will go oh what if we took it this way and i'm thinking i never would have thought of that so let's do that Mm -hmm. You know, because yeah. the the most obvious one is the way everybody's going to write it. So. And that's why publishers don't want it and labels don't want it and people don't want to cut it. It's because it's been done before. Yeah. If you imagine the number of songs that they hear yeah. or that you guys hear, I mean, it's, it's, it takes something that's going to stand out and be different. Eric Church has a song called Record Year yeah. that was 
unbelievable in, in that regard too. Just a great time. And it can't be. You're always walking this line of it's got to be different enough, but not so different that they go, "What the hell was that?" Right. That's, that's tough. That takes skill. Um, question: Who came up with the idea for Songtown? You or Clay? <laughs> <laughs> well, he did. He's on the show. That's right. I will say it was me. No, it was actually. We. It was just a conversation we had. We were co-writers and friends, and we had run into some people that had been ripped off in Nashville and we thought why are the why are people coming to Nashville paying twenty five hundred dollars for a demo and giving the people they're publishing and so we we started it just as a way to tell people the truth based upon two guys who've done it actually you know but the other thing we found is there was a lot of people teaching songwriting that had not ever had hits mm -hmm. and that kind of thing so we thought let's give back by teaching telling the truth and teaching how it really works and so that's kind of what we based it all on is just kind of a street cred thing of here's two different ways that it worked and they still doubt you sometimes they sometimes yeah they that, oh well you can't win them all um i just saw one go by oh, stream of consciousness regarding lyrics you tend to be more structured to follow a song title or subject matter that's a good question well i found that my stream of consciousness is sort of like a drunk uncle Oh, I got to process that. He wanders about, okay. <laughs> running into things, bouncing back toward the middle. And I think there's very few of us that our stream of consciousness is something that someone else can follow very well. Because I think, you know, I think a lot of us have... I'm still working on the drunk uncle. <laughs> I think, oh, never mind, I won't go this. Well, it's a G-rated show. Yeah, I'm you know, sorry. Anyway, um, but I think, you know, very few of us think in that much of a linear way that we can put together something that that millions of people are going to go, that's awesome, I get that. And so for me, I, I try to take the inspiration from the stream of consciousness, but then I try to filter it through a um, little bit of an editor of going, okay, stream of consciousness, that's really cool, but we don't know who these characters are. You know, you, you plopped me down in the middle of this story mm -hmm. and other people don't know that and so I, I kind of take the stream of consciousness stuff as the seed and then I apply a very specific process to making it you just said sense. something really important um, plop you down the middle song and not everybody knows that or something uh, not everybody knows that so this is what we were talking about earlier which is if you're writing a song where you're fully informed and you know the whole story you've got to assume that everybody else doesn't. Right. And so that brings us to editing, which you also mentioned. How many rewrites do you do on the average song that you're going to move forward with? Well, I always go back and look at a song before I demo it because I don't want to spend money demoing it if it's not right. And so I'm, I always do that. So that's sort of a rewriting process. But typically, I mean... Anymore, I've, I've demoed 6,000, more wow. more than 6,000 songs. So at this point, I'm pretty good at catching it in the room, you know, so, so there's not a lot of, I don't usually get to the end of the song and we switch pronouns or, you know, things like that. So we're usually close, but a lot of times what happens with me is I'll listen back to it and go, oh yeah, it was 4.30, we were kind of tired and that line right there rhymes, but that's about all it's got going for it, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Um, I'll just try to tweak the, the, the weak spots and make sure that there's nothing that drops the ball in the song. So I would say probably we make little changes about half the time. 
So you don't go through three, four, five iterations. I know some writers that will, you know, say that they'll keep a song in their pocket for six months or a year and go back and visit it, you know, like once a month and keep. Well, I mean, I've had stuff that I really believed in, and and I felt like in the room for some reason we didn't nail it, mm -hmm. and so I may come back to that later and and just look at it to see with fresh ears if I can find a way to make it work. Usually I can't, so I'm like, we were right. It was not very good. So it's a dead horse. Yeah. Uh, question. I think he means habits. Uh, James Kevin wants to know, Marty, do you have any traditional rituals, habits, as opposed to habitats, <laughs> that you do right before a songwriting session? Like, do you wear, you know, ladies' undergarments or have a rabbit's foot in your pocket or anything like that? That's just like the weekend. That? That's just on the weekend. Um, no, I mean... I have a, a way that I work best, so I've got a little bit of a, it's not superstition, but I think I get in the flow better if I get up in the morning, go work out, like, so I eat breakfast and I go work out, then I get a cup of coffee from Starbucks, and then I show up to write maybe 20, 30 minutes early so I can kind of get everything out, my guitar tuned and all that, and then, then I'm ready to write and I'm not stressed, as opposed to like, I've got 15 minutes to be there, and it's going to take me 17, you know, so... Right, I, I you try walked to, in, in the loser's position exactly. already because of the stress. Yeah, you, you so... doomed yourself. I try to make sure that I'm, I'm well-rested and that I'm prepared to write, but then I, those other things also help me kind of de-stress and be ready where I feel like I'm at my best. So you talk about going into the room with stuff um, that you bounce off of each other, you and the other writer or writers. Um, how much time do you spend at home? Does that, you know, you have dinner with your wife and kids and then uh, it's like, I'm going off to work on some ideas or do you wait for the muse to hit you and you collect those ideas for future writing sessions? Mm -hmm. How does that work? I think the muse is often off visiting someone else when I need her. So <laughs> I, I tend to try to work without her. If and, and, You know, actually, I, just try, I think what I do is I try to work so hard that she eventually will show up, mm -hmm. you know. But um, when I first started, I would spend one or two days a week in the library going through um, books of quotes and poetry and just great writers and those kind of things. And I would I created a database of, of song ideas. So now I've got this database that has probably seven or 800 ideas that I haven't written yet. And <clears throat> I sort them by who I think I want to co-write them with. So if I think I want to write that idea with Paul Overstreet. I put his name by it, so when I go write with him, I search for all those ideas. Oh, that's smart. And I can call up all the ideas I want to write with him. Um, so early on, I was spending a day or two a week doing that just because I felt like that's really all I had to offer a pro writer. You know, if I could come in with a great idea, I could probably get into rooms I didn't deserve to be in. And that really worked for me because there was a, a writer, Tom Shapiro, that has had 50 top 10 hits, and I never could have called him and just said, hey, can I write with you? But I called him one day and said, I've got this intriguing idea, and he said, tell me more. And I told him the idea. He had never heard the idea, so we wrote it and got a Diamond Rio cut with it, and after that, I could write with him. You know, But, but he said one time, you know, I, I always love it when I see you on my calendar because I know you're going to have the idea. How do you know that somebody's not going to hijack the idea when you call Tom that first time? Because I, I know a lot of um, not yet professional writers would fear getting their stuff stolen. That you 
obviously heard that concern before. And so is there an unspoken honor among thieves or writers in Nashville that if you call somebody and, and tell them about that idea, how do you know it's not going to get hijacked? I've never had that happen. And, and I think, I mean, I had a little bit of a relationship with him. I, I, the reason I was able to call him is because I wrote with someone else that was in the same office complex. So we would say hi and have a cup of coffee and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I, I, that never crossed my mind. And I think, too, if, you know, if you're, wor- if you're so worried about that, you're going to be paralyzed. You know, you've got to take opportunities. That was an opportunity I had. And if I had been worried about my idea, then yeah. I would have never gotten that you know, chance with him and never would have gotten that cut. That kind of thing, but a lot of people do worry about that, and I always say, hope that if somebody steals your idea, hope it's somebody that has a hit record mm-hmm. <laughs> and that you registered the copyright. Well, you know, the other thing too is the way I look at it now too is, well, I need to write it better than they, you know, than they do. If that's going to be my goal, is like to write it better than anybody else is going to write it. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, not take that first exit, but I'm going to write it in a really creative way. So even if they do steal it, they they're probably going to write it if they're looking for an easy thing like that. They're going to write the first way they think to write it, mm-hmm. and just you know move on to the next thing. But I've literally never had that happen. I've never had anybody. I felt like they took my idea. Well, it's about to happen to you now because I'm going to take that first exit thing and I'm going to use that all the time. So, <laughs> but I'll mention your name okay. right now and then I'll give you some credit right. for it. I really like that. Um, Okay, one more question because we're a little over on time-wise. Uh, Marty, do you ever give a demo singer a percentage of the copyright, say like 10% of the copyright, to do vocal on the demo? No, I'm a, I'm very much a purist um, because to me, the, the only copyrightable parts of a song are the lyric and the melody. And so if, if I had a demo singer that, let's say they changed the melody that I thought was brilliant and added, and added to the song, I would consider doing that because then they've they have written part of the song. But if they just come in and they sing what I told them to sing and it's awesome, that was their job. That's what I'm paying them to mm-hmm. do. And so I've told producers, I've told big artists. I had a pretty big artist one time call and say, you know, I changed some lyric and I want writing credit, and I just said no. And I had a producer call for a really big artist and say. I think my guitar part was so special that you sh- you know you should um, you should give me 15% of the publishing and I said I said well sounds like you copied 85% of my demo so if you give me 85% of the production money I'll give you 15% <laughs> of, of the publishing and you know awesome. that's that's I'm sure that has cost me some in some ways but I think too if you in my experience if you do that that happens to you every time. Right. So if, if you it, roll over once, it, you'll roll over twice. Exactly. So if you get the reputation of, oh, just ask him for part of the publishing and he'll freak out because he wants to cut so bad. So I, I think in the end, wow. the integrity of that is, to me, is writing a song is a sacred thing. And I'm not going to give someone credit who didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, what about the unspoken or maybe spoken rule in Nashville that if you're in the room, you know, you get a half or a third, that some days you're the guy who did nothing more than put the sweetener in the coffee, but next week you might be the guy that came up with the killer title and the hook. Mm-hmm. Is that pretty standard still in Nashville? Yeah. Uh, if three guys sit down in a meeting and only two of them are really responsible for the song, you still get a third because you're yeah. there? And You know, I mean, I've, I've had co-writes where um, one guy surfed the internet the whole day. 
and so I just didn't write with him again. Mm -hmm. But the odds of that song, he, he was in the band that we were writing for, but still the odds of that song becoming a huge hit and me feeling like, oh, well, I had to give him a fourth of it is just not worth the bad karma of going, well, you didn't do anything. You know, just the next time he called to write, I said, yeah, last time you didn't do anything, you surfed the internet the whole time, and I'm not really into giving you a song to do that, you know. So Most of I've never had a co-write where we had anything other than an evil split, even split. Okay. Um, I just remembered, I'm going to go five minutes long if you don't mind, because sure. I just remembered that Kimberly gave me two questions before the show, and this what we were just talking about reminded me of one of them. Um, these came in on Facebook. When submitting a song to sell to an established artist, um, which sell technically not really the word, is the demo quality as important as the song itself? For example, can I have only a key? Well, we already talked about this more mm -hmm. or less, but um, so a guitar vocal or keyboard vocal demo can get cut if the song is strong enough? Yeah. Okay. I think it, it all depends on the song. Usually if it's an up-tempo, high-energy song, it's hard to communicate that with a guitar vocal. Mm -hmm. You know, So you probably need a band and that kind of thing. But I think, mo in my experience, most of the artists aren't looking at it going, well, I want to just copy this track, so it needs to be radio-ready. And Bruce Shima Bakuru wants to know, after watching so many episodes, and I'm, I hope this is a nice question because I'm not pre-reading it, after watching <laughs> so many of Taxi TV's episodes, I realize that a very common problem with member songs is that the story never feels complete. There's sometimes a lot of missing information. Uh, I completely understand that, but also realized a few days ago that there really is no limit as to how much detail a writer can use. I'm assuming that too much detail can also be hurtful in songwriting. We're going back to the furniture in the room now. I think that listeners, this is a long question, <laughs> I think it's a, a book-sized question. I don't think listeners really care about what the songwriter was wearing that night when he met this special girl or what he ate while on a date with the girl of his dreams. <gasps> My question is in regards to finding that balance. Are there a series of questions? Now we're getting to the meat of it. A series of questions that you ask yourself in advance that need to be answered. Well, I mean, one thing I, ask, I seriously ask myself every day is who gives a crap? <laughs> now, so if I'm, if I'm writing something like that and it goes, I'm, I'm, and I find myself going into he was wearing a blue shirt and he was eating a barbecue sandwich, yep. I go, does anyone really care? And sometimes they do. Like Tim McGraw had a song, uh, talked about a barbecue stain on a white T-shirt. Yeah. That was point on. I mean, because he just painted, they painted the picture. Yeah, you knew so who that perfectly. guy was, where he was. You could yeah. see it, and it did matter in that story. Sometimes in the story it doesn't. You know, this might be a song about something that has nothing to do with that, and I'm just kind of wandering with my stream of consciousness, all this thing. But we were, we were talking before the show about the way I describe it when I mentor or teach is, you know, you furniture for a song or detail, you want the same amount that you want in your den at home. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to just pack it full. You want enough to be comfortable, and you want enough to do the job. So if you got five people in your family, you want at least five seats, and you know you want it to there be room to move around and that kind of thing. And that's the way it is in a song. Is you just you need just enough detail, and and it all goes back to that communication. You need just enough detail to communicate. So if I'm giving you the picture and the feeling that I intend, that's enough. I keep this. Ralph Murphy gave me this, um, and it was written. Let's see if it's on here. Uh, 
Here Comes Goodbye, Rascal Flat song uh, from Kurt Lagerberg and Curtis Sly. Do you know the song? Um, mm -hmm. Truck tires coming up the gravel road. It is one of the best examples of just enough detail in a song, and I keep it right here because I play it probably five or six times a year to remind myself what excellent songcraft is. Mm -hmm. Truck tires on a gravel road. We all know what that sounds like, and it starts the story out, and then it talks about her walking up to the door but not knocking. Mm -hmm. Here comes trouble. And, and yeah. We don't need to know that they're Firestone tires or right. Goodyear tires. Right. Or you how know. fast she was going or anything. Right. Yeah. It's just here she comes. Yeah. So that my answer to that is always just enough. I love it. You need just enough detail to tell the story. Well, I think you've given us uh, more than enough detail, and not in a bad way, but in a good way today. And I really, really enjoyed having you on the show. Glad to be. Here. I will see you in five weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, five yeah. weeks, I think, at the road rally, and I'm scared to death that I've got so much work to do before then. Thank you guys for showing up. Um, next week, I am taking Monday off from Taxi TV because I've got a bunch of road rally stuff, so we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, thank you very much, Marty. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you to the folks from Batson for bringing this lovely guitar. And uh, see you guys at the Road Rally. Thanks for showing up. See you next week for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Bye, you guys. More applause.